Okay, so this is our um, Simon Doan reading group. We're continuing our reading of Imagination and Invention. We are on page 178 of the translation. So we're almost at the end of part four of the book. I think we're going to finish that today. Uh, so that's the part on invention, uh, the last stage of his cycle of the image. And so the last couple of sessions, we looked at technical invention, so inven inventing technical objects. And so this is drawing on his work on the mode of existence of technical objects. And he and a couple of the examples are, are new ones. They aren't uh, from that work, from that uh, other book. A couple of them are drawn from that book or related to the ones talked about in that book. But I think the core, so a couple of key points here are a technical object is a creation in the sense that it's something that exists independent of the activity of the being that creates it. So when you, um, and, and this is how we contrast um, human technical objects, human created technical objects with um, technical objects of other animals. So we know that lots of animals use tools of various kinds. Um, like uh, an example that I talked about uh, a few times is chimpanzees that will stick a, a branch into a, or a, a twig into a tree and pull out the ants um, that live inside the tree and, uh, and eat them. Um, but this twig is then discarded, or um, uh, it, it only has any sort of um, relevance to this task of getting ants to eat um, as the chimpanzee is using it. Uh, and then um, it's just sort of thrown away and, and then just becomes a, a regular twig again. Um, whereas human tool use um, or tool creation often involves um, producing something that uh, can be reused, uh, can be improved upon that can be um, passed down through generations, et cetera. Um, so you can think of something like um, even a simple like hand axe. So um, taking a, a stone and um, um, napping it so that it, it has a sharp edge that you can use to chop things. Um, even something like this is something that you, you're not going to just discard after using it once. You, you, you know, invest time in making this tool that has um, properties that you want um, to be able to use to, to you know, perform certain tasks. Uh, so then you're going to keep this tool. Um, and then potentially, um, uh, as it gets dull from use, you will um, re, uh, re-sharpen it or re-nap it so that it has a sharp edge again. Um, uh, you might uh, pass it down to your children or uh, other people to use. Uh, you might trade it for something else, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this this tool, even though it's the product of a living being, uh, namely a human being, um, it uh, it has uh, sort of reality independent of that person. It can be used by another person. Uh, and then also, in addition to just being sort of that one individual tool being used by another person, it can um, serve as the basis for another tool. So you can use this tool to produce, um, say, something out of wood, uh, some wooden tool. Um, that is used for another purpose. Um, so you can use one tool to make another tool. Um, and then you can also, um, you can use a tool as a basis for, uh, a, you know, a, a more developed tool. So a stone um, axe might serve as an inspiration for a metal axe of some kind. Um, uh, so you, you've developed something that is an improvement on the original tool. Um, using a different method of production or a different set of materials or whatever. And, and so for Simon Don, these are all sort of um, characteristics that distinguish human tool use from uh, other animals' tool use. Um, so it's, I think, open to question how much that is still accurate in terms of our knowledge of animal tool use today. Um, so to some extent, this distinction is less clear than it was in Simon Don's time. Um, but yeah, so this notion of an independent existence of the technical object is sort of the key um, idea for Simon Don. Uh, and this is what he's going to develop further in his notion of um, how an invention is a kind of um, what he calls concretization in, in the other book on the mode of existence of technical objects. So a technical object becomes more concrete the more its multiple different components start to be sort of um, organically connected to each other in the sense that each component doesn't just contribute one function to the the operation of the whole component, the whole um, technical object. Instead, each part or each component uh, is plurifunctional, so it it contributes multiple different um, functions to the functioning of the whole. 
And in particular, in a, in a less concrete or a more abstract technical object, you have the one function of a component and then everything else, all the other um, physical properties of that component is just sort of noise or um, it detracts from the, the functioning of the component. So you think of um, like electronic um, components that, um, that have uh, some sort of background noise. Um, like if you turn on a radio, you, there's a certain hum or hiss kind of, kind of noise that you can hear. Um, or like in a mechanical device, there's friction uh, between gears or other components. Um, so these are sort of um, undesired effects of, of the components that are not part of the functioning of the whole, the whole device. Um, and then in a more concrete technical object, um, you have more and more of those um, sort of side effects get incorporated into the functioning of the whole so that um, the device no longer or to a lesser extent um, destroys itself through its own functioning. So uh, a less concrete mechanical device, for example, that has a lot of friction um, will wear down quickly um, and you'll have to replace the parts um, uh, relatively often. And then a more concrete mechanical device will have less friction or will uh, use the friction for some sort of useful purpose in the functioning of the device. Uh, and, and so the, the functioning of the device is less self-destructive. And, and that means that the entity, this, this technical object as a whole, is more sort of independent and uh, self-subsistent. So it has more independent reality than the abstract technical object before. Um, and so this is, uh, I think, Simon Don's sort of key concept in, in studying uh, the evolution of technical objects. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, this is, this is, it's in this sense that um, the creation of a technical object is a, an actual creation or invention. It's something new that appears because um, as he again, as he points out in the passage or in the the last section that we just read, uh, the last couple of weeks, um, when you try to solve a problem through a a, a technical um, a device, like when you try to your your device is you want to do X with the device and it doesn't do X, and then you try to improve your device so that it does X, um, it's it's almost never the case that you can just sort of find a solution that sort of perfectly maps onto this uh desired goal and and that's it um generally you have to um include a lot more in your solution than just the particular goal that you're aiming towards and and it's this more this sort of surplus that um that constitutes this uh uh intrinsic reality of a technical object so you by um um, trying to solve a particular problem uh like getting more output from your uh, steam engine for example um uh, to some extent, you can like to to for a certain amount of time, you can just make your steam engine bigger and bigger uh, and get more output. But then the the steam engine starts becoming too heavy or too bulky to use on a train, for example. And then you have to actually redesign the steam engine, as he describes in one of the examples in this book. Um, you have to redesign the steam engine uh, using a new schema of operation, so that it it's uh, uh, and and this new um, steam engine doesn't just solve the problem of um, getting, getting more output without taking up more space or, or without extra weight, but it also has a completely different mode of functioning, which is less um, self-destructive and so on. Um, so by solving, by, by trying to achieve a certain limited goal of, you know, more output of your steam engine or whatever, um, you end up having to solve a much bigger problem and creating a whole new schema of operation of a technical object. And so um, you're sort of incorporating a um, this sort of effect, this um, physical process that uh, previously was not part of the functioning of the of the technical object into that technical object. Uh, so you're sort of adding more reality to the technical object, and that and so it's in that sense that it's uh, it's a, a creation or an invention. It's not just um, a sort of incremental improvement to an existing technical object. Uh, okay, so yeah, uh, the last section in this part is. Um, passing from the creation of technical objects to the creation of art objects. Um, so, um, uh, or aesthetic objects, sorry, is the term that he uses. Um, but yeah, um, let's uh, stop here and, or, and then we can start the reading if uh, one of you would like to read. I can read. <clears throat> Subsection two, other categories of created objects, in particular the aesthetic object. The existence of several layers around an object, of course, around an object responding to mental images is not the exclusive characteristic of the technical object. It is also found in the domain of the sacred, linked to the profane by different zones 
that mediate and protect it, but also hide to some extent what is essentially sacred, what constitutes the source and resistant nexus of sacredness. See the study on technicité et sacralité, technicity and sacredness, part of a course of social psychology delivered at the Faculté des Lettres of Lyon and published in the Bulletin de l'École Pratique de Psychologie de l'Université de Lyon. It is likely that the sacred object cannot be multiplied like the invented technical object. Its sacredness is propagated to some extent through contact and intention, or through the fragmentation of a unique primitive object. Finally, the ritualization of sacrifice constitutes a spatial and temporal reticulation that universalizes sacredness and creates an interaction between nature and the sacred that is formally comparable to that which characterizes the development of technical objects. Perhaps even the dialectical process described above may also occur through the dissemination of the sacred through paths analogous to those of technicity. This would allow us to posit that, in part, sacredness corresponds to a creative activity concretizing the genesis of images with an incorporation of effects contained neither in the finalizing intention nor in the process of ritualizing, project of ritualizing, and with a similar opacity of univocity with respect to conceptual analysis. The category of aesthetic objects lends itself more easily to observation, or perhaps even analysis, in our societies. The mode of existence of these objects reveals a plurality of more or less deep layers that is more or less proximal to the result of invention with a mode to the result of invention with mode of a superficial type and styles which imply a dissemination across a group of amateurs who are partially initiated and sometimes capable of reproducing, imitating, and organizing a limited world according to the norms drawn from the created object, such as the way furniture is arranged to showcase artworks constituting their milieu. Uh, maybe I'll do one more paragraph. However, the topological analogies between the various layers of objects do not constitute the essential part of the effects of the invention activity as the endpoint term of the genesis of images. The essential part of invention resides in the effect of amplification by the recruitment of, an initially, of initially unexpected realities and the integration of these realities with new powers surpassing the origin into a formalized system. The development of this formalization, which is a consequence of the cumulative character of, inven of inventions, entails the incorporation of realities that were at first non-human into a world that has meaning for humans. Indeed, this is also what occurs in the evolution of the different arts to the extent that they produce works independent of their creators and broader than the conditions of their invention. A work is less broad than the conditions of its invention when it is directed by a predetermined and predetermining finality which gives itself the possibility of choosing an object to alter by detaching it from the conditions of its natural existence, hence selecting a landscape, a house, or trees in order to paint them based on the already picturesque character of these objects is to extract through selection an already constituted aspect, remaining at a superficial layer of reality, altered according to the time and place. Such activity, rather than amplifying, captures and reduces. It exhausts its subject the way one exhausts a source of natural energy, since it takes from the world homogeneous realities. The obsolescence of such forms of art is comparable to that of technical objects in which the superficial layer predominates, making them accessories of a defined attitude. The decorative object and the hit song belong to this superficial category. For a current example, we may take that of opticalized objects unconnected to meaning, use, or nature, from clothing to jewelry and automobiles to furniture. What these cases lack with respect to invention is the discovery of compatibility. The opticalized motif is produced separately and imposed in a violent way on deforms uh, whose genesis did not anticipate such an encounter. There's now an opticalized commercial adhesive tape that can be taped on any object in whatever manner. Art operates here through the addition of a pre-established superficial film on things, whose essential character is not modified. It is not creative because it is not demiurgic. It is only a masking and additive form of art without an activity of incorporation. Of course, optical motifs may have a meaning and be integrated when they underscore the remarkable points of an object, such as a rocket 
a target, a test pattern, a buoy, or a milepost. But in such cases, these motifs are precisely those of a shape, size, and color adapted to the object in its situation. Such superficial use is not recent. In other periods, there are profusions of ribbons or flowers on clothing, furniture, etc. So Simonon is comparing landscape art, or maybe more broadly, representational art in general, representational painting, with the most superficial layer of the technical object, which is furthest away from the essence of the object as uh, the actual invention or the the real, the essential disparation that's resolved in the engine, for instance, the car. Um, there's this interesting idea that a painting of a landscape is sort of exhausted by its concept. There's kind of nothing in it that goes beyond um, goes beyond the the painting of the, the sort of uh, the mimesis of the landscape itself, um, which probably isn't true of all landscape paintings, but seems like a fair assessment of a lot of. Um, there's a lot of pretty boring uh, landscape painting out there. So, yeah, I think um, I think he's probably not rejecting representational art as a whole here. I think he's um, like I think if you asked him about you know Michelangelo or like the Dutch masters or something like that, like he would say that these are you know real artworks that that have a, a value beyond just you know their resemblance to the models that they that they. Um, purport to show um i think um i think what he's getting at is this i um there's a sort of uh like doubling effect of uh certain types of art or certain artworks where it um it only it's only it only serves as a copy of what it um depicts uh which is already selected to be something you know picturesque is the term that that he uses here and, and that we use to describe uh certain landscapes for example like if you're like your landscape is already a picture, the one that you're looking at is already a picture, and then you just sort of copy it into a picture that you can, you know, put up on on your wall in your living room or whatever, um, and you haven't actually um, captured any uh, aspect of the landscape beyond the fact that it looks like a picture, um, and then you've just, you know, turned what looked like a picture into an actual picture. Uh, so you haven't really added any reality or, or invented anything new um, by virtue of uh, creating that landscape. Um, he, he goes on in the next bit that we'll, we'll see in the next uh, section to talk about the Impressionist, or he, he mentions the Impressionist. And, and so here we have, of course, um, there's a lot of Impressionists or, or sort of post-Impressionists like Cezanne, for example, who, uh, who paint landscapes, but they do so not just like, here's a accurate representation of what this um, landscape looked like on this particular occasion, uh, but instead they're trying to capture something, something about like the way that light interacts with the color of objects, um, the way that um, shapes stand out in a, a particular lighting or whatever. Um, so capturing some um, aspect of the scene that um, you might not notice, uh, only only an artist who has um, this capacity of creativity and invention is notices this aspect of the landscape and and captures it in the artwork. Um, and it's it's that capturing of some unnoticed aspect of the landscape or making this unnoticed aspect stand out that is a kind of invention um and and even like uh you know a photographer for example can um you know it's, it's maybe harder to do than with a, a painting but like a photographer can also capture some element of the landscape or make some element stand out that you wouldn't notice otherwise um you know um through uh you know effects of lighting or um the way that the uh the aperture is set up and things like that um i don't know exactly how they do these things but um yeah there, there's like a certain skill that is involved in um being able to capture these uh aspects of reality that you otherwise would not see um making visible something that was not visible previously or that was um sort of passed over previously uh one point of translation that um i think you as you were reading you sort of noticed that this was kind of weird in the translation i, I went, mentioned it in, in the chat here so in on page 178 on the at the bottom of the page um that first sentence it it has this phrase with mode which is weird um it should actually say with fashions um so this is a this is just a translation error so um le mode is mode or or manner or something like that and la mode is fashion 
Um, and here, Simondon means lab mud. Um, so he's talking about how, um, in the case of aesthetic objects, there is this um, sort of superficial layer of fashions. Um, you know, a certain school of art becomes trendy. Um, uh, people want to have, you know, their artworks displayed uh, in their living room or wherever. Um, they want to, you know, buy objects that are inspired by their style of art, et cetera. Uh, and then maybe 10 years later, that style of art is, um, uh, you know, passé and no one wants to show their stuff anymore. Um, so, and this, so this is like a, a certain superficial um, use of the aesthetic object. It, it only serves to, um, it, it's an expressive or, or semiotic use of the artwork in the same way that the, um, <clears throat> the aluminum dashboard on the car was purely semiotic. So the, the, the aluminum dashboard on the car just is a signifier of um, sort of technical sophistication and, you know, being up to date and so on. Um, and didn't have any real impact on the actual functioning of the car. And likewise, you know, showing off that you have the latest, um, you know, trendy school of art um, displayed in your apartment is just um, a way of sort of signifying how you're, you know, cool and with it and so on, um, as opposed to, you know, um, appreciating this artwork as an aesthetic uh, invention, as, you know, making visible something about reality that was not visible before, uh, and so on. Um, so that's what he's getting at in that passage. Uh, and I think, yeah, the first paragraph is also um, uh, a bit difficult. Um, I think this, um, he's sort of alluding here to some uh, some of the developments in the third part of On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects, where he talks about the relationship um, between different modes of existence, uh, uh, different modes of human existence, or different ways of being in the world. Um, and um, especially here, when he talk, when he uses this term reticulation, um, this is a term that in in that book is used um, of the magical mode of existence. So the the sort of uh, primary mode of existence before any kind of split between subject and object or figure and ground. Um, and so this this term reticulation in that context, what he's referring to is the way that in this magical mode of existence, the world is, is sort of um, structured in this network of uh, key points. Um, so like the peak of a mountain or the center of a forest or whatever, um, these are points where the whole, all the sort of magical power of a region is concentrated in these points. And then likewise, you have uh, key points in time. So um, the new moon or the full moon or, or you know, some um, lunar cycle, and then you have the new year or um, Halloween or um, whatever other sort of moments in the year that um, have this specific uh, magical power. They, they sort of concentrate the, the moments, uh, uh, concentrate the, the magical power of the rest of the year into a, um, one moment. Uh, and so I think when he's talking about the sacred here, he is sort of alluding to this development, though I, I think he's probably not identifying the sacred with the magical. Um, those are probably different categories, but um, uh, in in that book, he also talks about um, like in the later developments, he talks about how the aesthetic um, arises out of um, uh, you know this this sort of splitting process, uh, splitting out of the original magical mode of being. Um, and um, I think I think it's also in individuation where he talks about the relationship between the sacred and the art object. Um, and, and the art object is sort of uh, in our society as a kind of remnant of the sacred in a lot of ways. Um, um, so like you can think of, you know, medieval art, for example, was in, in Europe, uh, specifically medieval art was almost exclusively, um, religious art. It was used to decorate churches and, um, uh, manuscripts of the Bible and so on. Um, and, and then in the Renaissance, you have, um, again, lots of religious painting, but also, you know, portraits and so on. Um, but, um, again, the, the development of art in, in like say from the renaissance onwards is um uh, a sort of um separation of art as a independent sphere from religion um and uh so in, in some ways um our sort of attitude to the artwork is um descended from a religious or or a sacred um understanding of the the object um so like you think of um an artwork is always presented in uh, a gallery or in some sort of setting um, that is like um, appropriate in some way to that artwork. You wouldn't hang a, a beautiful painting in your bathroom, for example. Um, 
um, you want to sort of display your respect for this object by by the way that you um, you hang it, by the way that you approach it and observe it, and so on. Um, and uh, you, you can think also of like the way that you know there's a whole specialized industry of like moving paintings, for example, of like preserving the the temperature and humidity and so on, uh, so that they aren't damaged in uh, in travel. Um, uh, it's a pretty elaborate process, especially with older paintings, because of the um, fragility or the the way that they can be damaged by any sort of sudden changes of uh, environmental conditions. Um, so yeah, we have this sort of elaborate um, uh, set of uh, behaviors, or you could call them rituals, even of like how we interact with these art objects that um, is meant to sort of preserve their uh, specialness um, in in a in a way that's similar to the way that uh, sacred objects, you know, relics of saints or whatever, are um, are handled uh, in religious uh, contexts. Um, so I think that's what he's getting at in that uh, first bit. But um, again, like a, a sacred object is um, different in certain ways from a, a an art object in the sense that an art object is um, um, uh, reproducible. Um, either you know you can make prints of a painting, for example, but also um, the the master or the painter can make m many paintings whereas a, a sacred object is something that you know happens through um one sort of event the the death of a saint for example um uh it's not it's not repeatable in the way that an art object is yes that's interesting about the transition from the sacred object to the art object <clears throat> i was reading recently about this there's a german uh art critic in hans belting who argued that um in a meaningful sense, there wasn't there wasn't art in the way in which we think of it prior to the Renaissance. Um, you know, most medieval artists uh, who you know painted did religious painting or created religious artworks um, were more or less anonymous. Like if you go to a museum, the medieval you know Western art section, you'll often see uh, the name of the artist will be like the master of the such and such um, tapestry or, you know, such and such a painting because the, you know, the individual individuality of the artist wasn't important, which changed in the Renaissance. And so there's this uh, art sort of arises out of the sacred, at least in um, the history of, of Western art, and then obviously changes pretty dramatically in the 20th century. Um, but one other thing I wanted to mention is, I think I talked about this before we started recording in the last session, but I was reading some Clement Greenberg recently. He's a, he was like a, a major art critic of um, abstract mid-century painting. Uh, and he argues that um, abstract painting sort of requires something of the viewer in the way that straightforwardly representational painting does not uh, in a way that reminded me of Simon Don's discussion of these different layers of the technical object and how the mass produced camera can um, do for the user uh, what the um, professional photographer has to know and bring to the process of creating a photograph. Um, yeah, in a similar way, Greenberg argues that a Picasso painting just doesn't um, doesn't do that for the viewer. You have to kind of do that for yourself when you see the painting. Uh, it's an interesting resonance between what Greenberg says about um, realist painting and what Simon Dunn says about landscape paintings and paintings of houses here. Yeah, that's interesting also because um, I know that some early Renaissance painters like um, Dürer and uh, Leonardo da Vinci, for example, they understood their work as um, a kind of quasi-scientific process. Like da Vinci did, you know, anatomical dissections, and he, you know, draws like diagrams of human muscles and and skeleton and so on um, as like preparatory work for painting. And, and painting so is, is therefore understood as um, a sort of uh, technique of representation um, that uh, you know your your goal is to sort of capture the perspectival um projection of a of a scene um but of course in doing that they are um you know doing something much more um creative than just sort of copying what they see 
um, like they're actually inventing perspective as they're doing this process. And so they're, they're creating something that, you know, never existed before in, uh, in Western art or not exactly in that form. Um, so yeah, I guess, so there's a difference between like, um, inventing perspective, you know, being the people that, you know, develop this technique of depiction, uh, and then, you know, 200 years later or, or 300 years later, um, you know, using a, a well-developed technique of perspective to paint a pretty landscape or something like that. Um, so th these are like different types of activity. Um, and, uh, yeah, the bit about the, uh, anonymity of like medieval painters is also interesting. Um, uh, I think we can, we can probably, um, we can probably connect this with the notion of an individuation of an art object. Like, um, it's only when an art object becomes something individuated in its own right, it becomes an object that you appreciate for its aesthetic value as opposed to the way that it um, illustrates uh, a particular religious message or, or something along those lines. It's only when that happens that the individuality of the artist starts to become important. Um, so medieval artists are essentially just skilled uh, craftsmen who you know, are, are capable of producing beautiful um, illustrations of religious messages and, um, you know, elevating the souls of, of the um, parishioners and so on, but they're not, like, um, understood as creating something individuated that would be um, valued independent of its role in uh, conveying a message and producing a certain spiritual experience and so on. Um, it's only, yeah, in the Renaissance where you end up with something like an aesthetic object appreciated for its own value as aesthetic objects um even though many of them are um are you know religious in in nature um in terms of the subject matter they depict uh but at the same time they're um appreciated as aesthetic objects independent of whatever um religious message they, they might be uh conveying so yeah the sort of transformation of the relationship between uh aesthetic production and individuality um that uh that uh, that happens around the Renaissance. Angus, could you expand on this bit about sponges? Um, I'm not, I don't think I see the connection exactly. Oh, yeah, just what you were saying about the um, medieval artist as kind of elevating the, as a craftsman for the benefit of the community. Um, that part in volume one where he talks about uh, individuation, uh, you know, these limit cases of colonial life versus, you know, the, the point at which uh, being goes from being part of a colony or an organ of a colony to being an, an individual. Um, and I remember he, he says that in some cases there's like a, um, the real test for individuation is whether there's this informational autonomy, uh, rather than a kind of physical separation of, um, from the colony. But I guess what I was thinking is that you could see this more co like colonial life form as corresponding to the medieval um, communal approach to art. And then in the Renaissance, you have, I guess, a kind of individuation of the artist, uh, which someone with like, someone like Burkhart would probably try to associate with like Renaissance politics. Although I understand that he's not um, contemporary scholars of Renaissance history are pretty critical of uh, Burkhardt, but I don't know. I think there's you could maybe force this parallel between uh, the individuation of like jellyfish and sponges and the individuation of Renaissance artists. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think also maybe in connection with this is the way that art production was often you know in medieval and into the Renaissance and in early modern times was often uh, you know done by a workshop. So someone like um, Michelangelo or Rembrandt or whoever would be like the master of a workshop and they might do the, the face on a painting and then and the hands or whatever and then leave all the background stuff to one of their apprentices. Um, um, and so like they would sort of um, maximize the amount of paintings they could produce for their clients, um, uh, you know, by dividing up the task and, and leaving, leaving the boring and easy parts to the to the apprentices. Um, and, and so even after this, like start of the individuation in the Renaissance, the, um, the actual production process of the painting is still, um, uh, communal in the sense, uh, or at least a, a sort of workshop, um, process as opposed to one, uh, 
sort of genius as, as like later and sort of romantic um, versions of, of the art um, individuation relationship have it. So um, yeah, you have a, a whole workshop is involved in the creation of the art object as opposed to this one person. Um, so I think, yeah, you have this um, emergence of the individuality of the artwork uh, and the individuality of the artist that sort of goes with it. Um, but it's a, a sort of gradual process that um, takes probably a few hundred years to actually sort of uh, end up with the romantic idea of, you know, the artist as a, a lone genius who sort of captures something uh, that no one else has ever um, thought of before. Um, and yeah, so I think in uh, in individuation, there's this notion, like when he talks about those sponges, he talks, or in similar organ corals and, and these types of organisms that have um, this sort of uh, colony form. Um, one interesting bit about the the, the relation with individuation is how um, um, the sort of individual form of this organism is often associated with reproduction. So like you have a, a colony of sponges that, you know, lives for a certain amount of time. And then uh, under certain conditions, like, I don't know, environmental stress or whatever, they will um, uh, separate out or one of them will separate out and, and form a free swimming uh, individual organism that, um, you know, swims around until it finds a good location and then settles again and starts to bud and produce new uh, a new colony. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a connection between um, reproduction and individuation that he talks about in, in that part in, in the individuation book. And uh, maybe we can also connect this with the way that here in this book, he, he describes the art object as more reproducible than um, a sacred object. Um, so, yeah, the, something about how... Um, an art object can be reproduced either, you know, uh, through mechanical means like a print or, you know, you can make multiple copies of a painting. Some artists have done that uh, or some some artists also make series of paintings like, you know, multiple variations on the same um, sort of arrangement uh, or, or like different studies for the same um, the same painting or something like that. Um, so this sort of reproducibility um, of the artwork maybe is connected to the way that it becomes more um individuated in the renaissance as well um but yeah i'm not sure exactly how to um articulate that connection okay so let's go on to the next bit um i can read this passage the middle layer in the production of created aesthetic objects is that in, is that in which activity is neither a random coding nor an amplifying invention but an elaboration that stays in place as it were without an increase or decrease of limits without gain or loss remaining within the closed and chosen universe of connoisseurs who form a coterie a way of acting and a set of processes are preserved and transmitted through time with neither learning nor forgetting. This modality represents, as in the case of technical objects, the attitude and tendency of those who, without being creators, make use of the arts as accessories to their main activity, as a hobby practiced with taste and distinction, but in a relatively marginal way with respect to a central activity, such as the way a journalist uses photography. A journalist's requirement for a photograph is that it be technically skillful and a satisfactory accessory to his investigation or discovery, which is that of a reality essentially expressed in the written text. Similarly, a dedicated amateur expects an art object to be satisfying and skillful within a marginal and limited universe that produces its own norms. For this reason, the amateur tends to be conservative, that is, inclined to appreciate techniques that are relatively old. Today in France, according to Monsieur Ignace Maillersan, a widespread cultivated public appreciates impressionist paintings. According to the schema of dialectical reversal, the activity of creators in the arts should be archaizing, or at least it could appear as primitive. And this is true. Music of Xenakis, for instance, Terra Tector, presented in April 1966 by the ORDF, is disconcerting to professional musicians. A violinist from the orchestra showed with perceptible sadness the objects given to him as instruments. A whistle, another gourd-shaped object, the kind of things usually reserved for the drummer of the ensemble. The violinist resigned himself to using this object with the imposed rhythm, but could not accept calling it music. Yet despite the nobility of this attitude of refusal within elevated norms, Xenakis's piece is nonetheless a work that integrates very primitive sounds and noises produced by easy-to-build instruments which have existed for thousands of years. You might say they are raw sounds just as much as they are musical sounds. This work integrates the effect of a wild sonic matter and incorporates it into such a complete formalization that it determines, during the performance, displacements of the localizable source of sound across the performers as if they were part of the aesthetic perception. In the domain of architecture, we have referred to the power of discovery of Le Corbusier's, uh, Le Corbusier's thought and the simultaneously futuristic and raw character of his use of materials, whether rough or industrial, without dissimulation. What comes out of industrial work is, like concrete, raw in a certain way. 
The marks of constructive human activity, such as the traces left by wooden molds, may be retained for the final perceptual mode of the building. The final work integrates the phases of its fabrication in perceptual modalities, which thus remain perpetually present in the constituted work, as though it were in the very process of being made. Aesthetic amplification recruits present effects, such as the imprint of wood boards in the concrete that fills the voids, making them into a compatible system for the whole duration of the work. The work provides a futural dimension to the ephemeral gesture. It temporarily universalizes it. It also bestows a dimension of spatial universality to a local reality by inserting it into a whole in which it plays a full and prominent role as the single representative of its species in this place. Smooth pebbles from the closest river were incorporated into the facade of the Armbrel convent, giving the building the power to display native reality in its perceptible materiality. This materiality formalized by invention, the only one in the world of its kind within the relation of compatibility it maintains with the universe of other artworks, confers a spatial universality to what constitutes it, as if it were meant to manifest the local character of things insofar as they are the unique particular aspect of a multiform universe, like a word or expression within a language that can be indefinitely enriched. The archaism of raw reality and the local character of the perceptual display of matter, these are the sources of the effects that art in the strong sense, as inventor of created objects, recruits and displays by dilating them towards the time to come and the universality of a space. Right, so here he's uh, contrasting, um, I guess, two different modes of temporality of aesthetic objects, um, which might at, at the first glance seem similar or, or uh, you might have a hard time distinguishing them. So the sort of amateur or the hobbyist is conservative uh, in the sense that they sort of um, hold on to art forms from the recent past as like, um, uh, sort of um, signifiers or um, or not so much signifiers at, um, at, as in the, the purely superficial level, but um, they, they hold on to art forms from the past as, um, you know, expressing uh, as uh, having a certain beauty or aesthetic value um, uh, in, in that they produce pleasure. Um, uh, so like in his example, he's, he's writing in the 60s, of course, he... Um, he is points to the way that um, people uh, are, are sort of still appreciating the impressionists, um, or and maybe you know producing their own paintings in impressionist style. Um, and of course, the impressionists were from the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. So people are are um, sort of holding on to a style from you know eighty, uh, sixty, whatever years uh, in the past uh, at the time that he's writing. Um, and often this is accompanied by a, a sort of rejection of everything that comes after your sort of preferred um, time period. You, you, you say like the Impressionists were kind of the peak of um, artistic creation and everything after the Impressionists was, you know, a, a sort of decline or degeneration or whatever, um, or it's not really art or something along those lines. Um, and then in contrast to this attitude of conservatism, there's what he, there's what he calls um, archaism. And so this is... Um, um, it also sort of looks into the past, but not like a recent past, um, but a, a very distant past, um, or even possibly a, a mythical past. Um, so the example that he chooses here is um, taking these sort of um, uh, instruments that, you know, a gourd or whatever that, you know, would presumably have been around for thousands of years um, and, and putting them to use in a, a, a new artistic context so um of course like using a gourd in an orchestra and you know um using it as a, a part of a um, a musical composition in this context is very different than you know some uh i don't know sumerian shepherd or whatever in 3000 bc um using a gourd uh you know to produce music uh so it's you're sort of reaching back into distant into the distant past um but you're doing so in a way that allows you to produce something very new, as opposed to just sort of holding on to something in the recent past um, to sort of resist any novelty. Um, and, and again, like the, the other example, this is one of his sort of favorite examples is Le Corbusier's um, artwork or uh, architecture, where the use of like modern construction techniques like um, pre-stressed pre concrete and things like that allows for um, this sort of uh, rawness, um, the the sort of um, materiality of the the construction materials is part of the um, part of the design of the artwork of the of the building. Uh, um, it's not sort of hidden away uh, or covered over with paint or tiles or whatever. Um, 
it, it's this, this sort of bare concrete um, is part of the aesthetic experience of this building. Um, so uh, in this sense, you're you're sort of connecting the what's most recent with what is ancient, um, like skipping over the recent past, as opposed to the the hobbyist who like sort of holds on to the recent past to avoid having to deal with the the modern or the what uh, the contemporary. Um, so these are sort of two different modes of um, relating the aesthetic object to the past. I like the way that he describes the uh, the aesthetic object as this kind of uh, determination of appearance that preserves an appearance and gives it a futural dimension, which is presumably virtually universal in the same way that the uh, seed germ for crystallization is. I, I don't know if I... I don't think he's saying that all art needs to be archaizing in this way. The example that he gives to Xenakis uh, is kind of specific and not representative of a lot of, you know, music being made in the 1960s. Um, and I can think of a lot of artworks that aren't, that don't have this, you know, really deeply archaic aspect to it, but maybe as you suggested, he's just saying that this is one this is one way of having um, a beneficial relationship to the past. Yeah, I think um, maybe these are sort of more direct examples of archaizing uh, that other uh, that are not typical of other artworks. Um, you know, not everyone uh, writing music in the '60s was you know giving their violinist uh, gourds to to play on. Um, um, but I think. I think there's a sense in which um, creation of a new artwork um, always does involve some sort of uh, capture of some element of the past and, and sort of re um, revitalization of this element of the past um, in the sense that um, there are these sort of raw elements of reality um, that can be something like color, like sort of bare color, for example, like uh, the Impressionists, for example, um, you know, the way when Simon Don was talking about them in the 1960s, he's talking about them as like a, a sort of conservative um, model that people are point, these hobbyists are pointing to. But of course, when they were first painting, they were sort of the avant-garde, and um, you know they were denied, um, you know they weren't allowed to exhibit in uh, like the the establishment uh, salons and things like that. Um, um, and and what they were doing is sort of capturing um, uh, the play of light and the uh, impressions of color um that that you experience as opposed to depicting objects um and so these sort of impressions of color are in some sense archaic like every every human being um you know throughout the evolution of human beings and and, you know even prior to um modern human beings uh, other primates for example had color vision and presumably had sort of experience of of color um but that experience of color was always subordinated to the perception of objects um, that, you know, uh, the, uh, you only paid attention to color insofar as it was relevant for identifying, you know, what kind of object am I dealing with? Um, and, and so the Impressionists sort of go back into this very, um, this very uh, sort of raw aspect of experience, that, you know, sort of prior to the formation of objects in perception. Um, um, and and they capture this and make it visible in a way that it wasn't before. Um, so yeah, we I think um, I think there's like a, an aspect of maybe archaic is not exactly the right term, but it's this raw aspect of reality that you you're sort of um, uncovering something that is normally hidden in our experience of the world or our encounter with with objects. Um, you're sort of uh, removing like the veneer of things and letting us sort of experience their rawness in a way that wasn't um, experienceable before. Um, so I think I think that's like what he means here by archaizing. It's not necessarily a sort of temporal. Uh, it can be you know a, a reference or a connection to the distant past, like in the case of Zanakis that he talks about. Um, but it can also be just this sort of uncovering an aspect of reality that was there all along, or that we, we sort of, after the artwork makes it visible, it, it, it becomes something that was there all along, if that makes sense. It sort of retroactively gets uh, put back into the past. 
Yeah, we were kind of talking in the comments about the, you know, the Ezra Pound then make it new, like take the, you can take the past of the history of the art form and do something radically new with it. Um, I think uh, probably the best avant-garde art tends to do, tends to engage with a tradition in some way. And maybe that's what Simon Don is advocating for. Yeah, it's, it's this way, like, I think we've talked about this before, but how, like, if you just create something that has no connection to the past, if it's completely new, um, then it, in some sense, it's not really creating anything. It's, it's just sort of randomness. And there, you know, there have been artists who have um, sort of incorporated randomness into their productions uh, in some way. Um, um, but usually that's like in sort of explicit contrast to a more controlled way of producing art. Um, um, but uh, yeah, so like having some sort of uh, contrast with something that came before where you're, you're explicitly situating, or maybe not explicitly, but sometimes implicitly, um, you're situating your production in relation to what came before and it could be either like the previous generation or it could be you know uh, ancient greek art uh, um whatever um you know like in the renaissance people sort of look to ancient greek art, art as a model and uh use it to produce something new that was very different from the um the art that they were familiar with from like medieval artists um so yeah there's this sort of making the past um making some aspect of the past visible that, um, that was not visible, um, uh, you know, in, in the past itself. Um, so capturing this rawness that, um, maybe was hidden or, or covered over by the artwork beforehand. Um, so yeah, I know Angus, you said you have to go, maybe this is a good place to stop since we're right at the top of a page. And I think we're also at, uh, a bit of a, um, change of, subject in in the discussion so yeah we can stop here if that works for you that sounds good to me uh maybe we can do a full two hours next time yeah we'll see i think we'll try to meet an hour earlier and if that works for everyone and uh and then we may be able to finish the rest of the book depending on how again there's no rush we don't have to uh sort of try to finish it but like depending on how much we spend we spend on uh discussion of each section so yeah that sounds good to me. Okay, uh, so thanks everyone. Um, I'll put a, a note in the, uh, or I'll create the event um, an hour earlier for next week and, and hopefully everyone can make it that time. Uh, um, yeah, so see you next week.